Well, it's good uh, to have uh, a band, and I'm loving playing with our band, so thank you, everybody, for doing such a great job. And, um, you know, sometimes playing music, things go really well, and sometimes they go really terribly, and I'm just really pleased that they ha go really well more than they go terribly, and uh, that's a testimony to God's gifts that he gives his people, and so I just want to thank, praise the Lord for that, and for the gifts that he's given our team, so thank you. You know, I once heard a story about a golf instructor. His name was Claude Harmon. Claude was a great golf instructor, and he um, also... Four of his sons became golf instructors. And Claude loved giving advice, and he would actually give really good advice. And what he'd say to his boys was, yeah, boys, whenever someone comes to you to learn to play golf, you will see in their swing 10 different problems. Your job as their teacher is to find the one that causes the nine. And when we look at the world, we can easily see ten problems, can't we? Or more. But what is the one that causes the other nine? With all the problems in this world, and we have a lot of them, from stinking economies to stinking attitudes... There is one that causes the others. And the Bible gives a resounding, yes, we know what that is. See, Jews has dealt with that particular problem. The fountainhead of all others he dealt with on the cross. When the problem was addressed, Jesus declared, it is finished and with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Don't those words bear a sense of completion? Christ didn't begin a work on the cross. He didn't continue a work on the cross. But according to these words, he finished a work on the cross. So the great question that comes to us is what was finished? What happened on the cross that makes the cross such a big deal? And you know what? His enemies can help us actually find the answers to that because they inadvertently answer the question for us. And in the story, we find the answer to this question in Matthew chapter 27, verses 41 and 42. If you've got your Bible's head there, um, it'll also be on the screen for this one. In the same way, the chief priests... The teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Here Jesus is, hung on that cross. And the religious leaders there are mocking him and taunting him. But you know what? The assessment of Jesus' death on the cross by the religious leaders was 100% correct. They were 100% right in what they said. You see, Jesus could not both save himself and us also. 
he could save himself and leave us in eternal jeopardy or he could save us and lose his life on the cross. He could save us by giving himself. He could save himself and abandon us, but he could not save both himself and us. Our salvation depends on him giving himself. Now why? Why would that be? Why should salvation depend upon Jesus' death? Why couldn't God just pardon us? Why couldn't he just say, well, it's okay, I declare pardon for everyone. But like one cynic said, the good God will forgive me after all. That's job. That's his job, isn't it? Maybe not, I don't know. But if, jo- if God's job is to forgive us, why can't he just declare a pardon? When you forgive someone, it doesn't require someone's death, does it? So why should God's forgiveness require someone's death? In other words, what is this algorithm through which God restores life to the world by the death of his son? Well, the algorithm of God is that God restores life to the world by the death of his son. And that answer to that question leads us to two of the greatest biblical truths. One is the holiness of God and the other is the severity of sin. The cross reveals both the holiness of God and the severity of sin. And I do not believe that you can understand the story of God without understanding the holiness of God and the severity of sin. See, that God is holy is a foundational truth of the Bible presented from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. The fact that God is holy is foundational to Scripture. From the God in the book of Genesis to the God in the book of Revelation, God is portrayed as holy. That is to say, he is above. He is higher than. He's not just better. He's not just an improved version of us, but he is set apart. He is unique. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. There's something different about him. Totally and utterly different. See, holy means to be set apart, to be unique, and that is God. He is totally and utterly different. And this is manifested in the way that he views sin. Scripture says that he is so holy, his eyes are too pure to look on evil, that he cannot tolerate wrong, as Habakkuk 1.13 tells us. There is something about our rebellion, though, that stirs a holy disgust in God. See, our holy God cannot look on evil because our sin absolutely disgusts the holiness of God. There was the occasion when the children of Israel rebelled against God in the wilderness and God said, for 40 years I was angry with that generation. And the word anger here literally means nauseated. Our actions can make God sick. In the last book of the Bible, Jesus talks about a church that met in the city of Laodicea and they had grown lukewarm in their faith. 
And he said, I am so tired of you that I want to spit you out of my mouth. And it's the verb vomit that is used there. Not a very pleasant thought on a Sunday morning, but when God's holiness encounters our rebellion, it makes him sick. Odd that our sin doesn't cause the same reaction in us. See, we live in a generation unlike any other since the coming of Christ. Our generation has successfully removed sin from the discussion. And when we look at all the problems and wonder what could cause all of these problems, sin has been removed as one of the options. It's no longer on the table. I mean, fact check me on this. But when you watch a documentary about poverty or hunger or documentaries about international conflict and war, do you ever see anyone on the news on 60 Minutes or the 7.30 report say, well, the problem is sin? We don't see that, do we? It's been removed from the discussion. See, that would, be, that would sound so peculiar to us, so antiquated, so unsophisticated, we hear about government, business, education, psychology, sociology, not a word about sin. We fault our genes, we fault our chemistry, our inherited moodiness, our, or education, or government, or the way we were raised. We fault everything, but according to God, the heart of the problem has always been the problem of the heart. That's sin. That is to say, we refuse to acknowledge God and obey him as our creator. And our planet is populated by godless people and we make godless decisions. We do not factor God into the equation. That's sin. To sin is to reject God as king and then to make a play for his throne. Not only do we say he's not our king, our king but we also say, I am the king. And the world is turned into this massive competition for who's in control and who has authority. You know, according to scripture, if we could somehow write that problem, then the other nine would be corrected. If we could somehow get rightly related to God, but the problem is our stubborn wills. We have not got given God his dues. We have not rendered to God what he deserves. And that is the submission of our entire will to his. So how does a holy God respond to this? Does he just pretend that our stubborn rebellion is a regrettable lapse of concentration? Does he say, well, boys will be boys, girls will be girls? Does he just condone our stubbornness? Does he just turn a blind eye? No, he could not and still be holy. A holy God must hate sin. A holy God does not pretend our sin is a mental lapse or condone our sin as simple stubbornness. God hates sin and cannot turn a blind eye to it. God will not compromise his holiness by indulging our sinful behaviour. He must hate sin, and indeed, he must punish sin. So where does that leave us? Is God going to annihilate us? If he were to punish sin in us, we would never have gotten out of the Garden of Eden. 
But isn't it right? And who could fault him for destroying every last cell and fibre and be done with the whole mess of mankind? He might do this if he were just holy. But with every ounce of God's holiness, there comes an ounce of God's love. See, God's stern holiness operates from God's infinite love. He has this undying devotion to his children. There's just something about you that stole his heart. Who knows what it is? He just chose to love you. Not because we're lovable, but because he is love. And so we have these two strong, I guess you call them stallion emotions. God will honour both of these two strong stallion emotions, his fiery holiness and his tender love. God's holiness and love, they function together. Loving his children, stubborn as we may be, God's love, God's holiness, wearing the same yoke, According to the scripture, he is the compassionate and gracious God, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Holy and love. In him, love and faith, faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss together. He is at once our righteous God and our Saviour. He is full of grace and truth. Paul compels us to consider the kindness and the sternness of God and declares God to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Do you see the holy love of God? If God were only holy, we would be destroyed. If God were only love, a lack of discipline and correction would destroy us. Holy God cannot disregard wanton rebellion and a loving God cannot disregard his children. But the God of holy love will do what no one can imagine. See, God's holiness and love combine to do something unimaginable. God becomes a human being. And God as human leads a sinless life. God as human dies in the sinner's place. This is the great drama of the cross. Listen to these words of Matthew and John as they describe the hour of darkness. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sanatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes down to save him. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished and with that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom the earth shook the rocks split 
and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the Holy Spirit and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. So God enlists all the elements of nature to emphasise the solemnity of this moment. He darkens the sky. He shakes the earth. He cleaves the rock. He rips the curtain in the temple. He untombs the tombed. He unveils the holy of holies. And even the ruthless Roman guards are beginning to see the uniqueness of this one who hangs on the centre cross. It is the words of Jesus which command centre stage, for it is out of the darkness and it is through the mist that Christ speaks. And when he speaks, he opens those busted lips and he looks heavenwards towards the sky and with a bloody eye he cries out. You know, this is a strong verb in Greek. It is used elsewhere to describe the roar of a lion. Matthew says that he cried out, he roared like a lion, Eli, Eli, lemma sabatani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me read these words so heavy with emotion and we say, why? We're unaccustomed to seeing Jesus forsaken, to seeing Jesus and forsaken in the same sentence in the same scene, in the same moment. Jesus, God's own son, forsaken? Does scripture not say, I have not seen the righteous forsaken, an assurance that God does not forsake his saints? As we read in the Psalms, indeed it says this. But friends, do you understand that in this hour, Jesus was not righteous? In this hour, the Holy One was not a saint. For in this hour, God put on him the wrongs. God put on him who did no wrong, who never did anything wrong. God put on him the wrongs so that we could be put right with God. God placed our sin on his Son, and punished them there. God placed our sins on his son and punished them there. He poured his sin-hating wrath out on his son so he could pour his soul-saving love out on us. As John Stott states, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. God is not the indulgent God who compromises his holiness in order to save us. He is not the indignant God who ignores his love and unleashes his fury and consumes us. He is the great God who at once loves his children and punishes their sin and does so by putting that sin on the sinless one and the cross then becomes that safe and happy shelter 
O refuge tried and sweet, trysting place, meeting place, for heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. See, Jesus was forsaken so that we might be forgiven and received by a holy God. This is the beauty of the cross. Do you see the beauty of the cross? I'm concerned that you don't. I'm concerned that we might be missing the great doctrine of substitution. See, this is the marrow of Scripture. This is the heartbeat of the Bible. I'm concerned we might reduce God into that one who does us petty favours, gets us promotions, increases our pay packets, finds us parking places. I'm concerned we might have this small God. Do you not understand the immensity of this gift? What God has done for you offsets any difficulty you may ever have for the rest of your life. The scales have been massively tipped in your favour. Do you know what this says about your value? About how much God cherishes you? He owns you. He bought you. And he bought you not with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of his son. And when he was forced to choose between an eternity without you or an eternity with you, he said, I'll do whatever it takes to make sure you're with me. What else do you need to feel good about yourself? Do you not see that God cares so deeply about you? Do you not see this King of Kings? This, this is the beauty of the cross. Do you not see the tragedy of missing the cross? The writer of Hebrews asked this great question, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In other words, what's plan B? If Jesus is not our substitute, then who is? I can't be yours, you can't be mine, because I have my own sins and you have your own sins. The Lamb of God must be pure and perfect and sinless. And so if my sins and guilt are not placed upon him, then they are still placed upon me, which is to say then that, I will stand before judgment, covered in my own sin, and my sins will result in the punishment that I deserve. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And so the promise of God is that he has taken our sin and placed them on his son so that his son could take our place. And the one who knew no sin became sin for us. See, Jesus became sin as all the sins of the world were placed by God on Jesus. The sinless righteousness of Jesus Christ can now be ours 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In October 16 in 1987, I was just a mere three years old, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed on takeoff in Detroit, Michigan, killing 155 passengers. Only four-year-old Cecilia survived. She was found walking among the wreckage, totally unhurt. They thought this little girl mustn't have been a passenger because she was so untouched. But they checked and indeed she was a passenger. Celia's name was on the manifest. She's alive because just prior to the crash, Cecilia's mother Paula perceived that they were about to crash. She unbuckled her seatbelt and knelt in front of Cecilia and put her body over her daughter. And she wrapped her arms around her daughter. And consequently, the mother Paula felt the full force of the fall. She took the devastation of the crash on herself and Cecilia lived. Paula took the full fall for her daughter that she loved. This is what God has done for you. He wrapped himself around you in the form of Jesus Christ. And he has not pretended that there is no fall, for we have rebelled against God and consequently have fallen from him. Because he loves us, he has wrapped himself around us. And he has felt the full force of the fall. And the sin-hating wrath of God has been satisfied. And the child-devoted love of God has been manifest. Out of his sheer unmerited love for us, God devised this plan of salvation where the guiltless Christ took on the unrelaxed punishment of the guilty and he died, not like a sinner, but he died as a sinner. Martin Luther stated like this, by a wonderful exchange, our sins are not now ours, but Christ's. And Christ's righteousness is not Christ's, but ours. So where does that leave us? It leaves us knowing that his sacrifice is sufficient and your merits do not enhance it and your mistakes do not diminish it. The sacrifice of Christ is total, unceasing and accomplished. The cross finished the task of salvation. It only falls to us to accept it. As one writer stated, the prison has been stormed, the gates of the prison have been opened, but unless we leave our prison cells and go forward into the light of freedom, we're still unredeemed. Have you stepped out? God sent his son Jesus who wrapped his arms around you and me, took the horrible fall with all its sins so that in the midst of the wreckage of this world, we might live. God is holy and God 
is love. Our merits do not enhance God's love and our mistakes do not diminish it. Have you accepted Christ and his work for you? Or are you still happy to remain in your prison cell? The gates have been opened by the precious blood of Christ and his offer to you is a free gift of salvation, a free gift that cost him dearly. If you haven't accepted the love of holy God today, and if you haven't asked God to deal with your sin today, then why not? What's stopping you? Now is the moment. Now is the chance. If that's you this morning, then please speak to me or a Christian, a trusted Christian friend and let them know as we'd love to encourage and support you in your walk of faith in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Oh, holy God. Holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. Lord, we give thanks that you indeed are holy but we know that as a holy god our sin brings disgust to your lips and so we are also so thankful that you are a god of love and that by your great love you have given us your son who became sin for us so that we might be saved And so, Lord Jesus, we are sad in our sin, but we rejoice in your love. Lord, may you change our hearts and convict us of our sin so that we can turn from them and live lives, Lord, that honour the sacrifice of your Son, that honour the love that you have bestowed upon us. And Lord, we just thank you so much that your love extends to all generations. That we cannot outsin your love or your grace or your mercy. And so, Lord, we thank you that, Jesus, you became sin for us. That you died. And with that, took the penalty of our sins. It is finished. That hour of darkness has come, that hour of darkness has gone, and for all eternity we can stand before you with the righteousness of Christ upon us, for those of us who believe. And so, Lord, I pray for those this morning who might believe upon you for the first time, that today you have saved them, you have saved their soul. And that they now join with you with a life ever more changed, a destiny secure, a hope realised as we stand before you now, justified, not by anything that we've done, but by the faith we have in your Son. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You know, one of the things, you know, as the band comes, one of the things that um, 
I guess we can rejoice in is that um, hunter who you may have been aware of uh, gave his life to the Lord last year. He passed away this week. Um, and it was so fantastic to be able to lead him to the Lord and to believe in his security and his salvation. And he's now at peace with his saviour. And no more fighting the battles that he was fighting, the demons that he was fighting. He's now at peace with his Lord. And it really brings home the joy we have in the hope for eternity. And it really brings home how important it is for us to be carriers of that hope and take every opportunity we have because we never know when someone's day might be their last. And so um, I want to share that with you, that you can pray for his family who I don't know any of their... Uh, they haven't shared details of anything from here. Um, but I've offered support and help. Um, but I think it just brings home to us the love of Holy God and the importance it is to share that with others. Um, so we're going to conclude our service. Would you please stand with us as we sing about...